It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? <laughs> Hello, neighbor. Guess what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. That's exactly right. So I'm glad you are here for our journey as we are talking about what it means to be for your neighbors. When I was a kid, I had a microscope. Uh, Some of you might have had one of these with the three lenses on it. And with a turn of the knob, you could turn those lenses so they get more and more magnified. So you you put the slide in under the first lens, and you saw stuff squiggling around there. But you turn that knob on one switch, and suddenly it was like something from the Black Lagoon staring back at you. It was a much closer look at what was there before you. We're going to take a much closer look. We're going to turn the knob one click today. For the last two months, we've been talking about what it means for us to be for the city. We've asked, what would it mean if the people of Chapel Hill, every single one of us, noticed things in our city that we've never noticed before, uh, engaged people that we've ignored before, prayed like Nehemiah for our community like we've never prayed before? What kind of a difference would that make? We've been pounding away at it. I've been wearing the same t-shirt week after week. I have washed it each time. My wife has watched it each time, in all honesty. But, but we have been going away at this week after week after week in the hopes that you would finally realize he's not just talking to the people on either side of me. He's talking to me. This is for each one of us. So here's the final exam for this last series before we move on. I want to see the hands of yours, of you, who if you notice something you have not noticed, if you were intentional about reaching out to a, someone in a way that you have never reached out before, if you took one intentional step towards being more for your city, I want to ask you, would you raise your hand, please, right now? Awesome. Keep them up. I celebrate you. Thank you for being a part of that. That's great. Good job. So now... We're going to turn the knob on that microscope. We're going to focus in a little tighter. Not just on our city, but on our neighborhood. And suddenly it's going to get closer, more personal, more practical maybe. And and it could be a little scarier, especially if you are an introvert like me. That got a laugh the first service. I'm not, t- I'm not kidding. I'm kind of an introvert. When I go home, I kind of want to hide. And so the idea of reaching out into your neighborhood in a more intentional way, it's actually a little scary for me. And if you are like me, then we have some things that we need to learn together. And our teaching on this comes from the greatest neighbor ever. You might think I'm being a little flippant when I say that, but actually, John, when he describes Jesus, says that he came from heaven, took on human form, put on human flesh, and pitched 
his tent in our neighborhood. That's how one, uh, one translation of that passage in John goes. He pitched his tent in our neighborhood. So Jesus is going to be the one who is teaching us what it means to be a great neighbor. The teaching comes from his time in the temple. He's in the Jerusalem temple, and he's actually surrounded by enemies who are trying to trip him up. He had all kinds of folks who wanted to trip him up. All of them were the religious groups. One group was the Sadducees, and they had just tried to ask him a question about the resurrection, trying to trip him up with that. The cynical part of that is that the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection. But that's the question they asked, trying to trick Jesus up. And of course, he ends up making them look like idiots, as he did every time they tried to do something like this. So the Sadducees failed once again. Now it's the Pharisees' turn. And we're told that one of the Pharisees, a lawyer... They are called scribes. One of them speaks up, and he's going to take his shot at embarrassing Jesus. And when he asks the question he asks, we're now going to come to one of the most important passages in all of the, of the New Testament. And you'll see why in just a moment, but you ought to at least have the address of this story memorized. It's Matthew chapter 22. Verse 35, if you don't have the whole text memorized, because it is so significant. Why? Because Jesus, who is the greatest spiritual teacher the world has ever seen, is about to distill all of his teaching down into two simple points. That would be worth paying attention to. So listen, as we read from Matthew chapter 22, you'll find it in your pew Bible. I think it's page 828 in your pew Bible, in your app. Let's listen to one of the most important passages that come to us in the New Testament. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, you said this was uh, the great commandment. That means something. You didn't ever say that any other time. And so, would you help us to engage with your word this day, not in our heads only, but in our hearts, so that we might take this seriously, as seriously as you seem to take it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this Pharisee lawyer, he asks this question to, to trip up Jesus. He says, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? That Greek word for great is megale, from which we get the adjective mega. So mega church, mega bucks, mega lottery, or megadon, megalodon. That was the, the biggest shark that ever swam the ocean, biggest predator ever. That would, that would how'd you like to scuba dive with that sucker in the, in the pool? So that's what the word is, mega. And really, great is not a great translation of megaly. It really should be greatest. 
the greatest. It is the superlative. It is the tip-top, the uttermost. Some of you might remember a heavyweight boxer named Muhammad Ali. He used to make the boast, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. It was his famous boast. Well, according to Jesus, this is the Muhammad Ali of the commandments. This is the greatest. We are told that when the, 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 uh, the Pharisee asked this question, it was really a test. It was a, a trap, actually. And you might say, well, why? Why would a question like that be a trap? Because the fundamentalist religious scholars of the time believed that all of God's commandments, and they had counted like 613 of them, all of them were of equal importance. So if you could get Jesus to lift one up above the rest, that might get him in trouble. And so that's what he tries to do. But of course, Jesus turns the tables on the trickster. He responds this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, this was actually a pretty safe bet for Jesus because he was quoting from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and he was quoting from a, a verse that was actually a prayer that was prayed every morning and every night by every observant Jew. The prayer was called the, the Shema. Would say that? Shema. Shema comes from the first word in Hebrew, which is Shema, hear, or listen. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And it goes on then to say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and so forth. This was the daily prayer of God's people, and it reminded them that the most important thing that they could do in all of the world was to love God with everything they had, their mind, their heart, their soul, everything, to love God with everything they have. It is still the great commandment for us. The greatest thing we still can do is to love God that way. We ought to probably say that prayer every day. Lord, help me to love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, with everything I am. Help me to love you the way you have loved me with everything. Jesus continues from there. He says, this is the great and first, the greatest and first of the commandments. In other words, he said, this is your priority. This matters more than anything else. You've got to love God with everything you have. If you don't do that, nothing else, none of your religious stuff will matter. And so the trickster lawyer gets his answer. He wanted Jesus to choose one commandment to lift up above the others. And Jesus said, all right, here it is. Except Jesus isn't done, isn't he? He's not going to be backed into a corner. And so before the lawyer can even say anything, he moves right on. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you'll say, well, wait a second. He didn't ask for two things. He asked for one thing. But as I said, Jesus isn't going to be put in a corner on this. He says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this too is right out of the Old Testament. In fact, it's out of a, a book that we like to poke fun at. The book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 8. We tease about the book of Leviticus because in it are contained all kinds of kind of odd rules that the Jews were supposed to keep in order to live together. But tucked in the middle of these arcane rules for living is this wonderful gift of a commandment. You will love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. 
It's really a kind of a version of the golden rule which Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. The lawyer wanted one, Jesus gave him two. He said that the first and the greatest commandment of all is to love God with everything you have. If you don't do that, that is first. If you don't do that, nothing else matters. But then before he can even take a breath, Jesus adds, and you're going to love your neighbors as much as you love yourself. Love God with everything you have. That's vertical. And love your neighbor with everything you have. Horizontal. Both of them go together. That is the two-part mega commandment of Jesus. The greatest commandment of Jesus. Two parts. And he wraps it up then with these words. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. See that word depend? The word is literally dangles. Dangles. On these two commandments dangles or hangs or suspends everything else. So what Jesus is saying is everything you believe, all of this, it dangles, it hangs down from, it hangs from, is suspended from these two pegs. When we moved into our new home, uh, when we started putting up the big pictures, I didn't want to just put one of those hangers up. It was too big a picture for one hanger. And so you put up two, right? And you got to make sure that they are level, uh, even, because if you don't, it's not going to hang right. And and if you don't put it in right, it might just crash to the ground. You need it to be even and you need it to be secure. And Jesus is saying, everything that we believe, everything my followers believe as Christians, all of this hangs on these two essential pegs. You got to love your God and you got to love your neighbor. And if you use only one of those pegs, you are at risk of crashing and burning. I dare say that the the liberal denominations, like the one we left, they tend to focus on the love your neighbor peg. They're all about social justice. They're all about humanitarian efforts, about mercy, about political causes. So much so that some of us would say that they have tended to neglect the God peg. They forget that the heartfelt love of God, obedience of God, devotion to God is the first and prior of the two. And that the greatest of the two, and that the rest of it outflows out from this. If all you worry about, if your religion is all about just being nice to your neighbor, you have violated the great commandment of Jesus. And the whole structure of your religious faith is at risk of falling to the ground. That's what the liberal church has tended to do. But what does the evangelical church, like us, tended to do? We often ignore peg two. We're all about loving God. We believe in the Bible as God's word. We preach sin and hell. We preach repentance and forgiveness. We say that you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus in order to be saved, that you need to give your life to Christ. You need to be baptized. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That unless you trust your life to Jesus, no amount of good works will do you any good. You cannot work your way into heaven. It is the work of Jesus that gets us into heaven. That is what we believe. We are great on that loving God peg. And we often will neglect that second part. And love your neighbor as yourself. 
And if you pay attention to the teachings of Jesus, if you pay attention to the writings of the, of the apostles in the New Testament, you discover it's not just a matter of being nice if we love our neighbor. It's nice to do it. We discover that it is perilous if we don't. If you read the whole New Testament, you will discover that, that loving and forgiving and caring for, having mercy upon your neighbor, it's not an option to us. In fact, it is the test, it is the pure test of whether you really are, have a genuine faith. The Apostle John once put it this way in one of his letters. He says, how can you claim to love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother who, who you can see? He says it's ridiculous. If you can't love this, there's no way that you can truly love him who made all of this. My wife and I were talking about this. We often, she is really quite a great theologian and she often gives me great ideas for my messages. And and so we start talking about this idea of loving God and loving our neighbor. And and she found a, a great song that illustrated this. And what makes it even better? It is bluegrass. It is the ultimate expression of Christian music. In fact, when Ellis heard this, he said, you know what? We're going to change second service to bluegrass all the time. He was so convicted of musically of, of the value of this. And so the title of this song, and you're going to, I'm going to show you a little clip from it, is You Don't Love God If You Don't Love Your Neighbor. Take a look. Listen to the words. see you guys clapping. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) If you don't love your neighbor, then you don't love God. It might be a little bit harsh, but actually that is how seriously the New Testament takes this topic of neighbor love. We who tend to focus on the love God peg sometimes ignore the love your neighbor peg. Or we turn it into a slogan. Or we turn it into a t-shirt. Or we turn it into a metaphor. One, name, one, one author wrote about it this way. He said, if we don't take Jesus' command, this command to love your neighbor as yourself, if we don't take that command literally, then we turn the great commandment into nothing more than a metaphor. We have a metaphoric love for our metaphoric neighbors, and our communities are changed, but only metaphorically, of course. In other words, nothing changes. When Jesus told us to love our neighbor, surely that must have included the people who live closest to us. Don't you think? I mean, it might include more than that, as we'll see next week. But surely, love your neighbor must mean at least the people who are our neighbors, closest to us. 
Think about the culture of the time for Jesus. It was a very intimate culture, a very relational culture. Everybody knew their neighbors. Everybody was up in every neighbor's business. You, you couldn't just drive up in your car and press the, the remote and hide quickly into the, into the garage and rush inside without having to deal with people. You had to walk by your neighbor to get home. They were out there walk, talking and walking and working and gossiping. There was no way you are going to get past them. And you couldn't hide in your TV room and you couldn't escape into your smartphone. You had to be engaged with your neighbors. That's what was life was all about then. So whatever Jesus meant by neighbor, surely it included the most obvious. And that is the people who live right around you. And that's why we are going to focus on a more manageable chunk of our city. We've been talking about being for our city, but that's still kind of metaphoric, isn't it? Now we're going to get practical. And the book that has helped me most to think about this is this one. It's called The Art of Neighboring. In fact, I liked it so much and I hated it so much because it convicted me so much that we're selling it back there. So I hope you'll consider going back and, and buying one of these. I, and, uh, and over the next few weeks, this is going to help us to, to respond to what Jesus is teaching us about this great commandment. It's going to help us to ask the question, what would it look like if I really love my neighbors? My literal, next door to me, neighbors, the way that Jesus commands me to. Now, honestly, this may be no big deal for some of you. For some of you, you're going to be saying, this, what do you talk about? This is just so simple. I was dining with a couple this week who could have written this book on neighbor love. They got the hospitality thing down cold. But there are a bunch of you, I think, that are more like me. And for you and for me, this might be a point of real conviction. And if this is really what Jesus called the greatest commandment, the mega commandment, then if we're not loving our neighbor, aren't we disobeying Jesus? In our previous neighborhood, I had all kinds of good excuses for not loving my neighbor. For one thing, we were kind of remote in the woods there. And to get to our house, you had to drive across a little bridge. And our nearest neighbors were mean Canadians who didn't like us. I didn't even know they made mean Canadians, honestly. But there were others in our neighborhood that we could have loved, could have invested in. And we didn't do it. I never did. Why? Here's my second excuse. Because I was exempt. And here's why I was exempt. I get up here every weekend and tell 1,200 people, that they need to love their neighbors, that they need to be nice to their neighbors, that they need to do good things for their neighbors, that they got to bring their church to, na- to, to, to bring their neighbors to church. That's what I do. That exempts me. Now you go and do it. After church, one guy said, so it's like a spiritual pyramid scheme for you. <laughs> oh. Yes, I suppose that's exactly what that would sound like. I have become convicted in these last months that I cannot exempt myself from this. I am just as responsible to the, uh, to the Lord as you are to love my neighbor because I have been violating half of the mega commandment, the one that Jesus described as the greatest. I'm breaking half of it, which of course means what? I'm breaking all of it. I heard you say you don't love God. That'd be <laughs> another one. Because it's like the, it's the Oreo commandment. There are two parts that go together, right? 
You've got to have both parts to it. So when we moved into our new neighborhood, I, and I should say we, because my wife, as you all can imagine, is better at this than me, we began to ask what would it look like for us to love our neighbors well, love our new neighbors well. Now, rocket science. Step one, if I'm going to love my neighbors well, what is the most important thing for me to do? Know who they are. Wouldn't you agree? Know who they are. How am I going to love them if I, my neighbors, if I don't know their names? How can I pray for my neighbors if I know nothing about them? If I haven't a clue about the things that rest heavy upon their hearts, how can I possibly love my neighbors? How about you? I'll bet there's some of you who would, like me, you do not know the names of your literal neighbors. And so I'm going to take you through this insert that you'll find in your bulletin. The book, it comes from the book that I told you about. That It calls, it calls this the chart of shame. So pull out your chart of shame and let's see how you do. It's like a tic-tac-toe chart, and in the middle is your house. And I want you to imagine that the other houses around you are your eight closest neighbors. And I know some of your neighborhood doesn't look like this. Then just pretend. Imagine this represents your eight closest neighbors. Now, here's what I want to ask you to do. And I mean it. I want you to take this home and fill it out. You don't have to do it now. But this is your homework for next week. I want you to write down the names that go in the box of every one of those houses that is right around you. Could you do it? Could you write down even their first name? And then could you write down even one or two simple things about each one of those names? Something you couldn't observe just by driving by their house on the way home. The, something like, he, is, he loves bass fishing. She was born in Hungary. He, as my neighbor across the street, has a 1959 Corvette undercover in his garage. That's a cool piece of information. And then I want you to ask one more thing. Do you, can you list even one deeper issue that is a dream or a concern of theirs? A child that is sick or a, a cancer diagnosis or a boss who seems to hate them or a marriage that is in trouble. Would you have any idea about that? How would you do? Statistically, 10% of us could fill in all eight names. 10% of us. 3% of us could include some little detail in the box, and 1% of us would know something significant for each name. That is pathetic. So if you are a part of the 90% who couldn't even fill out this whole chart, I just want to ask you, are you willing to do something about it? Because this could be the starting point for obeying Jesus and loving our actual live flesh and blood next door neighbors. I suppose you could continue to ignore them as you have up to now. But if you say that Jesus is your Lord and you are ignoring his mega commandment, aren't you at risk of disobeying the one you call Lord? So if you, if, if you don't want to be that way, if you want to be for your neighbors, I want you to start here. This is simple. Your homework. Learn your neighbor's name. That's our starting point. And I know that you might feel like a complete doofus if you have to walk up to someone that you've lived next to for years and say, what's your name? So I'm going to give you a few tips. Here we go. Uh, one thing you could do is go up to the guy when you see him out raking uh, his lawn this week, say, hey, I'm getting ready to send out my Christmas cards, and I, I just want to make sure that I spell your name right. How do you spell it? 
Of course, when he says S-M-I-T-H, that might boomerang. So here's another solution. It's an even uh, less risky one. It's what I did five weeks ago. If you go on the Pierce County Assessor's website... You will find a nifty map that has a parcel. Every house is a parcel. Click the parcel and up come their names. And that works just great. Write them all down until, as you discover, one of the persons was a renter. So that didn't work too well for me either. Here's the third solution. Go to the one person you do know in your whole neighborhood who might know the rest of their names and ask them, can you help me write down these names? Fill in this chart. Or you just might need to cowboy up. And walk up to them and say, you know, I'm embarrassed to admit that, but I've lived here for all these years, and I, I don't actually know your whole name. My name is Mark Toon. What is yours? And then you run back home and write it down real quick so you don't forget. And don't say, my name is Mark Toon. That's my thing. That, you know, <laughs> I figured you'd know that part. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's, a, it's half of the great commandment, the mega commandment. We cannot love our neighbor if we don't even know our neighbor, if we don't know their name, if we don't know the slightest thing about them. So your assignment this week, take this home, write it down. Our chart is already filled out. It is on the inside of one of our kitchen cupboards, the one that we open up every morning for breakfast. It's right there, and we have a chance to look at them, to be reminded of them, to pray for them. This is your starting point. Go home, learn the names of your neighbors. When you come back next week, we will dial the focus in one more notch. All right? Will you do this? Will you do this? Let's pray. Lord, I hope we'll do this. We laugh about it. And yet there are so many of us who don't have a clue the names of the people that are living around us. This seemed to matter deeply to you. You said it was the greatest commandment of all. Love you, love God with all of our heart, and love our neighbors with everything we have. And we kind of can ignore that one, Lord. Forgive us for that. And so I pray in these coming weeks that we will have the courage to change the way we live. That we'll have the courage to reach out, to write down the names of people as a beginning point of what it would mean to love them. Not not with any ulterior motives. Not with the desire to, to get a notch in our evangelistic belt. Simply to do what you said, which is to love them. And then see what you do in that. So God, would you do this in us and through us? Would you reach out to our neighbors as we've never done before through us? Would you empower us through your spirit to love the people that live right around us as we've never loved them before? The way you loved us when you came and pitched your tent in our midst. Help us to do this, Lord, that we might be more and more your church.